John chapter 14, verse 15 through the end of the chapter. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath command he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judith saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself to us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth peace give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word to us, that we might appreciate, again, all that thou hast done for us, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, well, as I had mentioned before, I had read from 1 John chapter 1, chapter 2, and some of chapter 3, because that really, I think, is the commentary on what is taking place in this section here. This section here, if you read it superficially, it might give you the sense that God's love for you is conditioned on your work and you keeping the commandments. Um, however, we know that's not true because we know that um, we cannot keep the commandments, and indeed the Lord gave the law with the intent that it would teach us that we cannot keep the law, and that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. So we know that prior to the Lord conferring his love upon us, we were walking in darkness, we were ignorant of the depth and depravity of our own sin, and he had to reveal that to us. And once he did reveal it to us, then um, through the relationship, then we began to appreciate uh, who we are, who he is, and where we stood prior to regeneration and after regeneration. Um, in a historical context, context, I want us to appreciate that um, when you read the Ten Commandments, there are two ways to look at it. 
It says, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that, thou shalt not do the other thing. It's um, a lot of thou shalt nots. And so you can look at that in two ways. You can look at it as a prohibition, or you can look at it as promises. Now, prior to being regenerated, I viewed them as prohibitions. Having been regenerated, I view it as a promise, that I indeed will not do those things. Now, if we take a look at Ezekiel chapter 36... Um, the Lord kind of lays this out for us. He's speaking about the new covenant, and he's speaking about um, pouring out his Holy Spirit upon people that he would write his laws in their mind and in their hearts and that they would, in fact, keep them. So if you look at Ezekiel 36, I'll pick it up in verse um, 24, where he says, when the, we're going to see the word I in here quite a number of times, and he's speaking about what he, God, is going to do. He says, For I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. Now, there's a lot of there's metaphorical language here. I just read verse 24 of Ezekiel 36. That was Ezekiel 36, verse 24. That is what the Lord has done to His people. And when um, when we when I use the word Israel, I'm speaking of it in the context of the Israel of God, He that is circumcised in their heart and not of the flesh, the Jew that is of um, that is of God, whose heart was circumcised by God. So that is what the Lord has done. He's taken us from all over the parts of the world, and he has brought us into um, a new, his own, our own land. And that own land would, of course, be Christ. Um, verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? And so the Lord washes us through the renewing and regeneration of the Holy Ghost that he pours upon us. So this language here is indicative of what he's going to do through his Holy Ghost. Verse 26, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. So again, this is all the things that the Lord God is going to do. He's going to take out our stony heart, and he's going to give us a heart of flesh, and he's going to... um, uh, pour out his put a new spirit within us and what do you suppose that spirit would be but the holy ghost um, verse 27 and i will put my spirit within you that is his spirit and i will cause you cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them so he's going to give us his spirit and it is through his spirit that we are going to keep his laws and his judgments and that we are actually going to do them it will not be of ourselves but it will be of him working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. And in verse 28 says, And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave unto your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. So we need to appreciate the medical for, uh, metaphorical language in terms of the land that he's going to put us in, the land that he promised unto his fathers, and that would be the new heaven and the new earth. God is the God of the living and not the God of the dead. So we're not going to go live in a place where there's a bunch of, where people that lived before us have died without a relationship with God. We're going to a a place where God is the God of the living, where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, live, the promises being made to them of the new heaven and the new earth. So in Ezekiel here, we see a transition where God is making a, a promise to his people that the Ten Commandments will go from prohibitions to a promise, that they will walk in his ways and that they will keep his sayings and that they will do them. So here when we get to John chapter 14, now the Lord is kind of using somewhat similar language when he says um, things that he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, I'm reading verse 21 of John 14, them, uh, he that keepeth them, 
He it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now, we know the simple language it says in the Bible that um, we love him because he first loved us. And so this whole idea of, of keeping the commandments is really rooted in love. It's rooted in God's love for us. Um, those that have had children and um, would desire that they obey them um, know in their hearts. And they would desire that their children obey them, not because they've been told to do something and would uh, be compelled to do it out of fear of punishment, but rather they would be obedient unto their parents because they love their parents and have a desire to do their parents' will and a desire to please their parents. And that should be the heart of every Christian to obey our Heavenly Father because we love Him. And so we can appreciate that our obedience is rooted in our love for them. And the Lord says it in verse 15. He says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. So our motivation to keep the commandments is rooted in love. And as I mentioned last week, you can take all the Ten Commandments and boil them down to two. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto the first, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. So the commandments can all be boiled down into those two, that it's rooted in love. Not only is your obedience rooted in love, but, the, um, but what you are doing is you are loving um, God and you are loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, as it said in Ezekiel 36, and as it's going to be manifest here, um, our obedience uh, and our love is all... A relation, it's all a function of our relationship with God. And it's, it comes from God pouring out his spirit on us, which is the Holy Ghost. You'll notice in this section here that there are three questions asked by three different disciples. In verse 5, we have a disciple asking the question. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Well, how can you know the way? You can only know the way if it's revealed to you. And how is the way revealed to you? It's revealed to you through the Holy Ghost. So that answers that question. How can we know the way? And so the, the conversation is initially on the superficial level. You know, Jesus is like, I've told you how this is going to happen. I've told you where I'm going. I've told you I'm going to the cross. I told you that I'm going to go to my Father, essentially through the cross. You can't come with me to the cross. But when I go to the Father and return, I'll come and I'll bring you with me to the Father. And so in verse 6, Verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father by me. Um, but that's not going to impress the truth on um, Thomas's heart. The only thing that will impress the truth upon his heart is when God puts it there, when he pours out his Holy Spirit uh, on them. Now, the second question we see is asked in uh, verse 22. Um, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou will manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world. Well, how is that manifestation going to take place? Well, the manifestation takes place, um, again, through the Holy Spirit. Jesus has been walking with him. He has demonstrated who he is through the mighty uh, works that he has done, and the Father working in him to show that he is, in fact, the Messiah, that he's the Christ. And yet people do not understand or appreciate that he is, in fact, the Messiah, even though he said it clear as a bell who he is, where he is from, and where he is going. So the question is, how is it that he will manifest himself unto the disciples? Well, it will happen when he breathes on them and says, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And when he does that, of course, then they begin to understand and appreciate the things that God has set before him. Um, I skipped over Philip here, I'm sorry, in verse 8. Philip asks him a question too. 
Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices thus. Well, how is the Lord going to show them the Father? Well, he's been demonstrating the characteristics and attributes of the Father ever since he's been with them. But again, that truth has not been impressed upon their hearts. And it will not be impressed upon their hearts until they receive the Holy Ghost. You know, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it, it talks about how the natural man cannot receive it the things of the Spirit of God because they are um, foolishness unto them, unto him, neither can uh, he know them. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, but the natural, in verse 14, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The disciples have not yet received the Holy Ghost, and so even though Christ is standing right in front of them, telling them who he is, nevertheless, they do not appreciate that he is the expressed image and visible revelation of the living God. Jesus says plainly, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and that is certainly a true statement but they don't appreciate that. The truth has not been impressed upon their hearts because they are yet natural men. In verse 16, it says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that ye may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so that these, the veracity of who Christ is and all of that he's going to do is rooted in us having the Spirit of God within us, which is a gift of God and comes when we receive the Holy Ghost. In verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 2, it says, Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So I would speak to you through the Spirit, and you would receive that information also through the Spirit. So again, as I said, we have three questions here and three answers, all of which um, are manifest in the Holy Spirit. It is only when they receive the Holy Spirit that they can understand and appreciate the, uh, the truths that the Lord sets before them. In the second part of verse 26, the Lord speaking of the um, Holy Spirit says, He, speaking of the Holy Ghost, shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Um, in the military, we used to call that a need-to-know basis. You know, they don't need to know everything. They are not going to be omniscient. They're not going to truly have all of the knowledge of God, but he's going to bring things to their remembrance that um, he has taught them. And that is a, a wonderful promise that we can rely on too as well. If you memorize Scripture, um, by all means, lean on the Lord that he would help you appreciate and understand that the things that you have taken the time to memorize because that is a promise there. And we see this manifest in the life of the um, disciples. In John chapter 2, verse 22, when he was speaking about himself as being the temple, which when he says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up, they didn't understand what he meant. They didn't understand that he himself was the temple of God. And then in verse 22, it says, when therefore he was risen from the dead, and what happened when he rose from the dead? Then they uh, received the Holy Ghost. His disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the words which Jesus had said. So while he was with them, he was teaching them, telling them what things uh, he was, what things he was going to do. But yet they didn't believe it because they did not yet have the spirit. Um, in John 12, 16, we see again similar language where um, we can appreciate that again. It's not until they have the spirit of God that they can appreciate the veracity of Jesus' uh, words. And these things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him. So now they're also understanding the scriptures. There's understanding the Old Testament that all scriptures testify of him. 
and that they had done these things unto him. So again, we have this appreciation about uh, who Christ is and the things that he had done and that he is in fact the Messiah and the veracity of that comes to fruition when they receive the Holy Spirit. In John 15, 26, the Lord says, again, speaking of the Comforter, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, but when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So that's the primary um, teaching of the Holy Ghost is that it's teaching us about Christ, opening up to our hearts who he is. So it's important for us to understand that all the truths here, all of this idea of this uh, loving the Lord and keeping his uh, commandments, all of things are rooted in us having received the Holy Spirit. Um, now, before again I look at some of these things in John 14, what I do want to do is go back to 1 John chapter 1 so that we would appreciate the things that are written in there, and then it'll be uh, easy for us to understand what's written there in John chapter 14. Um, I've always found the language in 1 John a little bit enigmatic, but again, when you get out your, um, your Greek Bible and uh, appreciate the labors of those that have told us about the Greek verb tenses, you can appreciate what uh, simple language is in view here in 1 John chapter 1, 2, and 3. Um, what the Lord is going to do here is delineate between the children of the Lord and the children of Satan. The children that walk in light and the children that walk in darkness. And so he kind of bookends the sections that I read here when he um, says that in uh, that um, in verse 5, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness. Obviously, if you walk in the Lord, you're walking in the light. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So if you're claiming to walk in light, but you're actually walking in darkness, you're saying, I'm in the Lord, and yet your experiential walk, the things that people see you do and the things that you actually do, are indicative that you're walking in darkness. Um, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So he's already talking about here, you're walking in the light, and yet you need to be cleansed from sin. This is something that has taken pace place in the past. The Lord has done that. Um, but we're going to see here that we are going to stumble in sin in verses 8 and 9 and that there's a remedy for that for the one who's been regenerated, for the one who walks in the Lord, for the one who walks in light. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is not in that individual and is not convicting them of their sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, notice sins is plural, and the word confess there is in the uh, verb tense of continuous or repeated action. So we should be continually coming before the throne of grace, asking for the Lord's forgiveness um, for the sins that we continue to, um, not in a continuous lifestyle, but the sins that we stumble in. So I, it's not a way of, of, of our, a life for us. Um, we are walking in the ways of the Lord, but we still stumble in sin. And speaks of the Lord being faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, in other words, we have not sinned in the past, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if we, um, we speak that way, then while we were speaking, we are making God to be a liar. And his word is not in us because, again, his word is not convicting us of our sin. 
And what God says about us is true. He's telling us that we have sinned. And therefore, for you to deny that is to call God um, a liar. Now he says, my little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. That would be a simple undefined action. And if any man sin, if you do a simple undefined action, a simple sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So you are going to sin. And when you do, you go to the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. And he's um, faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Speaking of the Lord in verse 2 here, it says he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins, also for the sins of the whole world. Um, what that is saying here, for him to be the propitiation means that he is the cause and agent of our reconciliation with God. Jesus is the cause and agent of our reconciliation to God. And there is no one else on this world that can do that or that does that. So when it speaks here of uh, him being the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, you should understand that to mean that there is but one physician on this planet. He doesn't heal everybody. And not everybody goes to him for healing, but he's the only one that can heal you. And such it is with the Lord. There is, only, um, there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. He is the Savior of the whole world, meaning that if anybody in this world is going to be saved, it's only through Jesus Christ. He does not save everybody, nor does everybody turn to him for salvation. People turn every direction but to the Lord for salvation. Um, and that is our nature, to, to, to do that. But um, anyway, verse 2 there is telling us that the only means and agency by which a person can be reconciled to God is through Christ. And he just said that in John 14 when he says that no one comes unto the Father but by me. Now verse 3 here speaks of what the Lord's talking about in John chapter 14. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his Commandments. In other words, this is in the present tense, that we desire to obey the Lord and to follow him and to do the things that he has set on our hearts here. You recall back in John chapter 14, he speaks of two different things. First, he speaks about keeping my commandments. And that's kind of, you think to yourself, well, that would be the Decalogue. That's got to, can't be too difficult to do. I mean, Paul says that of himself. He says, you know, I've done nothing contrary to the law externally. But in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord expands on those and helps us to appreciate that if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you've murdered him in your heart. If you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. So the Lord expands those Ten Commandments, really, and and takes them off the pages of the Bible, if you will, and puts them in the heart in a very convicting way. But then later in John chapter 14, he talks about keeping my word keeping my word. So we should appreciate that word is logos, and Jesus is the logos, so that he should be in your heart, and that you would be keeping and doing things um, far more broad in general than specific things that are articulated in the Bible. It's about conformity of us into the image of Christ, and that is much more difficult and much broader. And so that's what we should appreciate here in the terms of keeping his commandments goes beyond the Decalogue, beyond the um, precepts that are written in the Bible, but to being like Christ in every way. And there are things in the Scripture that tell us that would... um, encourage us to do that when it says, you know, if you know to do good and you don't do it, that's sin, even though the Bible doesn't specifically say do this particular thing. So the Lord has impressed many things upon our hearts about things that we should do. So in a, in a, in a, a um, present daily living, we ever want to be obedient to the things that the Lord has impressed upon our hearts. In verse 4, it says, He that saith, I know him, 
and keepeth not his commandments. That is, again, a way of living, a continuous and repeated action. We're not uh, endeavoring and, and doing those things. Is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whosoever keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Now, God, um, God bestowed his love upon us at some point in the past. And through his love, he continues to work in our hearts to perfect it and to um, conform us to the image of his son. And so if you're struggling with sin, um, you're fighting a war within yourself um, as you're endeavoring to com- battle the lusts of the flesh. And rooted in that process is this decision-making process, which is really in our subconscious. Do I love the Lord more or less than my sin? Do I love my desires? Do I love the lusts of the flesh more or less than my sin? And so as you go through this process of really struggling internally uh, with obedience, that's part of the process whereby the Lord is perfecting our love for him and conforming us into the image of his um, son. Verse 6, He that saith he abideth in him ought also so to walk even as he walked. Now, I think we can appreciate that statement in light of what we've just read. If you're in Christ and Christ is in you, you have to behave like him. You know, Romans chapter 8 speaks of us being conformed to the image of his son. And we are indeed being conformed to the image of his son. And so there ought to be a difference between the way you walk today and the way you walked before you were regenerated by the Lord. It should be manifest in your life. And quite frankly, others ought to see that of you as well. And uh, it's hard to see it on a day-to-day basis, certainly. But if you look back 20 years, 30 years before you became a Christian, 10 years before you became a Christian, clearly there's been a change in the things that your heart, um, uh, the affections of your heart. You desire different things, um, and you should, at the very least, desire to please the Lord and have a closer uh, walk with Him. Now let's go over to John chapter, 1 John 3 and uh, speak of some of the things that are written in there. Um, verse 4 of 1 John 3, Whosoever <coughs> committeth sin, <coughs> that would be in a continuous or repeated action, transgresses also the law, and again we talked about the law is love, first for the Lord and then for your neighbor as yourself. And sin is transgression of the law. If you, we know what the scripture says about that. If you've transgressed one commandment, you've transgressed them all. And they all can be boiled down in, into love. Um, love for your God and love for your um, neighbor. And you know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Now that's self-explanatory. He did come to take away our sins. Um, whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, meaning if you're continuously abiding in the Lord, which there is only one way to abide in him. He says that in John 14 about giving us the spirit and the spirit would remain in you forever. And then the Lord lives forever. He's in you. Therefore you live forever. So you are in the Lord forever and he is in you forever. Whoever abideth in him sinneth not. In other words, that is not the pattern of your life um, that you're not sinning as a, as a way of life. Whosoever sinneth, meaning continuously, repeated action, hath not seen him, neither known him. And to see him would be in the context that I talked about in John chapter 14, that the Holy Spirit is in you and God has manifested himself to you in this spiritual context, that you know him, you have a relationship with him, you know who he is, appreciate who he is and what he has done for you and continues to do um, for you. Um, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness 
is righteous. Again, this is a continuous way of living. It's a pattern of lifestyle, even as he is righteous. Obviously, the things that we're reading here are indicative that the Christian is manifesting the characteristics of the Lord. Um, Verse 8, he that committeth sin, again, continuous or repeated action, is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil, which he has done certainly in all of those individuals for whom he died and whose sins he washed with their blood and in whom he indwells. Satan does not have the influence upon you that he did before. You know, recall that in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about us being in bondage to Satan, that we did his will. We did the will of the prince of the power of the air that worketh now in the children of disobedience. That's how we used to behave ourselves, and we were subject to him. We did the things that he wanted us to do, but God manifested himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ, giving us his spirit and destroyed the works of the devil. Verse 9, whosoever is born of God doth not continuously commit sin. He's quite repetitious here. For his seed, that would be the seed of God, remaineth in him, in the person that was born of God. And he cannot sin continuously because he is born of God. So the regeneration has taken place. The Holy Ghost is convicting that individual of their sin and turning their hearts away from it, inclining it from their flesh and the lust of the flesh into pleasing the Lord. Verse 10, in this the children of God are manifest because they don't continuously sin and the children of the devil. There's a differentiation made here and it can be observable, observable and it can be experiential. The children of Satan, they continuously um, walk in sin. And whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. In other words, if you're not doing righteousness continuously or continuously loving your brother in a way of life, I know we get irritated one with another and it's not always manifest. We do stumble in sin, but again, the Lord's speaking in a very general context about again, walking in the Lord and walking in light not continuously sinning, occasionally stumbling, but yet continuously going before the throne of grace and asking the Lord to cleanse us um, from all unrighteousness. So, now having said that, here we are back in John chapter 14. And again, the Lord is exhorting us to do things to keep his word and to do his commandments. And so we have this struggle that is within us, and yet nevertheless, the Bible exhorts us to be obedient and to do those things. Um, and that's a struggle for people. And so in, in John, um, excuse me, in Romans chapter 7, we have the statement that is made where it says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. So there's a real struggle that takes place in the life of the Christian where they, they know that they're a sinner. They know that sin dwells in their flesh, and uh, they desire to please the Lord. And why would they desire to please the Lord? Well, because they love the Lord, and the Lord has written his law in their hearts. So there's this relationship between this individual, which represents the Christian walk, and the Lord, where we desire to please him. And yet we can't find in our flesh that which is good, that would we would use to uh, combat sin. And so um, you couldn't do it before you were a Christian, and it's certainly very difficult to do after you were a Christian, but nevertheless, you were exhorted to fight against the, the sin. And um, Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 um, speaks about that when it says that the flesh 
lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's verse, actually, that's 517. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. In other words, you desire to please the Lord, uh, but you're struggling and you're finding it difficult to do. But nevertheless, you must continue to fight and wage that war. In uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, it actually refers to it um, as a war. In 1 Peter 2.11, it says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul. So there's a war going on inside you, and yet we've read um, in a couple places here where we are to endeavor to fight that battle, and we must continue to fight that battle. And so the Lord is speaking about that in the context of, well, if you'll do that, if you'll continue to fight that battle, well, then that's a manifestation and indicative that you love me and that certainly that I love you and that the Father will um, come unto us and make his abode with us, that he will um, be with us. Now, um, having said that, um, the Bible, as I've mentioned many times, there's always this tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And so we're seeing that manifest in here and that there's this, the flesh lacks the strength to do the things that uh, we want it to do. But nevertheless, we are exhorted to continue to fight and to do those things that would be pleasing unto the Lord. Um, let me see here, 2 Corinthians 2, 8, 11. Um, In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 11, it speaks here of performing things. It says, now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, in other words, you have a heart and a desire to do it, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. In other words, it's good to desire to please the Lord, and another thing altogether to actually do it. And so again, we find ourselves encouraged um, to do those things that are pleasing unto the Lord and do those things that the Lord has placed upon our heart, no matter how difficult it is for us to do them. Now, there are rewards for those things if you uh, continue to fight this battle, and the reward for that is really peace in your heart. Peace in your heart. You know that when you um, sin, I'm certain you felt yourself um, that you have grieved the Holy Spirit, and the Bible uses that language about grieving the Holy Spirit. When you stumble in sin, um, it, it breaks your heart, it grieves the Holy Spirit, and you feel a heaviness um, on your heart. In John chapter 14, the Lord speaks about that in verse 27 in the context of giving us peace. In verse 27 of John 14, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. So he's using the word peace here in really two different contexts. One is the peace that he leaves with us, and another is a peace that he gives um, to us. Well, what is the peace that he left us with? In both contexts, it has to do with peace with God. The first peace that he lives with, uh, leaves with us was peace that is a result of his obedience to God, where he went to the cross. And we read about that in John, excuse me, in Romans chapter 5, verse uh, 1, where he says that we have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that when the Lord went to the cross and laid down his life, sacrificed himself for us, that we have peace with God, we're justified by um, Christ. So that's uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Christian is not at enmity with the Lord. There's not a war between himself and God. He doesn't hate the Lord. He loves the Lord, and the Lord loves him. And he's been justified by the work of Jesus Christ. So God is pleased with that individual because he's the propitiation. God feels propitious towards us as he does towards Christ because when he sees us, he sees Christ and Christ's work in us. So we have that peace uh, with the Lord. We have peace because we've been justified by um, Christ. Now, but we can also have the peace of God. And we read about that in Philippians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 6, we have the peace of God, and this has to do with our relationship with the Lord, walking in a way that would be pleasing unto him, and uh, uncertainly unto ourselves when we walk in conformity to the things that the Lord wants us to do. Um, I'm certain you have felt this, that you are at, at peace with the Lord. Um, verse 6 of uh, Philippians chapter 4 says, Be careful for nothing. In other words, don't be uh, full of care. Don't be, be concerned about all of the things that is going on in this world. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So the fact that we can go before the throne of grace by virtue of the things that Christ has done for us, and we can present our petitions to the Lord and find grace and mercy to help in time of need, ought to bring peace to your heart. When you're in communion with the Lord, not only are you um, expressing your desires to Him, But he ought to be giving your heart a sense of his sovereignty over all of the affairs of this world. And that should bring you some peace here. And so in verse 7 it says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So because we're praying and because we're asking things of the Lord, we should have an appreciation for our relationship. And that... um, he would be conforming uh, our will to his will. And so uh, when that takes place, of course, we have his peace uh, within us. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on those things. I know I've shared with us in the past that if you take out those adjectives and put in Christ... Um, if you meditate and focus on Christ, by all means, you will have the peace of God. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, and here's that word, do, and the God of peace shall be with you. So when we walk, when we walk in conformity to God's word, we have peace in our hearts. And so when the Lord is speaking about that in John chapter 14, verse 27, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, unto you it's all rooted in the context of what he's speaking about here about him keeping the lord's commandments and you keeping the lord's commandments as as well it says let your heart not be done let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid and certainly that sh- it should not be troubled or afraid because he's laid out for the disciples here quite a number of reasons of why they should neither be troubled nor afraid all of the things that's set before um, them in terms of what he's going to do where he's come from where he's going to take them Um, They should be at peace with all of that, and they should appreciate the veracity of his words. But it's going to take the Holy Ghost before they, in fact, do those things. Their hearts are going to be troubled. Um, Verse 28, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, and my Father is greater than I. 
if you understood all of these things here, and if you truly did love me, then you would appreciate uh, that this is a very good thing. It's a good thing for me, and it's a good thing for you. If you understood what was happening with the church here, that we're all going to be united through... Um, through my sacrifice, that just as I am in the Father and I am in you, you will be united with the Father as well. And there's a glory that the Father has that is greater than what I have right now um, that we will all enjoy. Certainly, uh, the Lord will enjoy it. And in John 17, he speaks about that um, in verse 5 when he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. It's not that God the Father is greater in person than God the Son, but God the Father is in a place of glory that the God the Son has stepped out of. Uh, God the Son um, thought it not robbery to be equal with God because he is God and he is, in fact, equal with God. But uh, he stepped out of that glory and he is in the position, as we see here, walk, going to the cross and being a servant. Um, he made himself of no reputation, And he took on him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so it is in that context that the Lord Jesus is saying that the Father is greater than I. It's it's a positional in the sense of what the Lord has um, stepped out of and uh, um, submitting himself to the will of the Father and also to the will of men by going to the cross. In verse 29, he says, And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. You might believe what? This is the second time he said it. That you might believe that I am, that I am God. And so this also, when it comes to fruition, should give them peace. But again, um, God, this Holy Spirit has not yet been uh, placed on their hearts so that they are troubled when he goes to the cross and they don't necessarily see it as a step to glory that he's laid out before him. And they would believe that, like the world does, that he was a martyr or was a victim of the uh, political uh, um, tumult of that time when that is not the case. It was all by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God that it took place. Verse 30, hereafter I will not talk much with you. Why? Because he's going to the cross. For the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Satan is coming, and he's going to be, the Lord's going to be taken to the cross. So in verse 31, and he says, Arise, let us go hence. He's speaking about, okay, now let's go. I'm going to the cross. Let us go to meet Satan. Satan is the accuser, was the accuser of the brethren before the cross, but there is no accusation he can lay before our Lord. In him is no sin, and he did no sin. Now in verse 31, He's going to say exactly what he has been telling the disciples in terms of obedience. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father hath given, as that the Father hath gave me commandment, even so I do. God has commanded that I do something, and because I love the Father, I am going to do that which the Father has commanded me to do. In John chapter 10, verse 18. The Lord says, speaking of his life, verse 17, Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. Verse 18, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. So why is he going to do it? This commandment have I received of my father. His father has commanded him to lay down his life and to take it up again. 
um, that he might purchase with his blood the church, that he might um, wash the church with, um, with his blood, wash their sins with his blood. It's, it was a commandment from the Father, and the fact that he's doing it is indicative of his love for the Father. He's obedient to the Father. And so that's what he sets before us here um, in John 14. He says, but the world may know that I love the Father, just as the world would know that um, you love me is if you keep my commandments, that you would do the things that I would have you to do. Same thing is true for me. Um, I'm going to lay down my life as my Father has commanded me to do so. And that's indicative that the world may know that I love the Father and that the Father also loves me. And he says that back in John chapter 18. Um, so as we looked at these things here, as we walk through this thing, I don't want us to think for a moment that um, God's love for us is conditional on our obedience. I would say that the peace we have with him, there's some condition on that because it, it vexes us and um, grieves the Holy Spirit uh, when we... Uh, don't do the things that the Lord would have us to do. But we should appreciate ever that God conferred his love on us from before the foundation of the world. And we've talked about that in the time in times past. Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And so he's conferred that love upon us. And we would love him because he first loves us. But we would be obedient unto him because of that love. And that is indeed a difficult thing to do. But nevertheless, the Bible, uh, God speaking through his written word here, the words that he has spoken, that we would endeavor uh, to do that, to be obedient unto him, and that would be a manifestation of our love for him. Uh, amen.